Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is the show where each and every Friday I focus on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. And hopefully you've been enjoying our new format, our new programming menu here on Lions of Liberty, where each and every Monday... Mark Clare, our host of our Monday show, brings you a uh, another brilliant interview with a leading voice in the liberty movement, or sometimes he hosts a, a roundtable discussion with some of the minds here at Lions of Liberty. And he has started a brand new mailbag feature, Letters of Liberty, and you can ask questions for that new mailbag feature that Mark will answer by joining our forum on Facebook, the Lines of Liberty Forum. You can simply join that by going to facebook.com, punching in Lines of Liberty Forum in the search bar, and we will get you added. Just as easy as that. And you can submit a question into Letters of Liberty that Mark will answer every Wednesday. We have our new show hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's called Electric Liberty Land. It's an entertaining show that focuses on current events related to all things Liberty. I was on the, the second episode of Electric Liberty Land. It was a lot of fun. I'm really excited to see what he's going to do with that show. And every Friday, you have an episode of Felony Friday, which is the show, of course, you're listening to right now. And for today's show, it's a crazy show. <laughs> Believe me, I'm going to be interviewing Jordan Smith. Jordan is an investigative journalist who's covered criminal justice topics for 20 years. And I reached out to her because I was interested. I read a story on The Intercept, and it was talking about this crazy crime that happened in Vegas. And she had investigated it, and she wrote this story. It's titled Nightmare in Sin City, How a Rumor Sent a Teen to Prison for Murder in Vegas. And it's an absolutely bananas story about how an 18-year-old girl from a small town outside of Vegas was convicted of the most brutal of murders imaginable. And it was the evidence, there really no evidence, no physical evidence. It was based almost entirely on a rumor and she was convicted and she's still in jail. Hopefully though, um, she will be getting out. We'll obviously get into that during the interview with Jordan. I'll introduce Jordan just a minute here first. Check out the show notes page. You can find a link to the article at The Intercept, plus some other notes of my interview with Jordan. And you can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash FF55. This is episode 55 of Felony Friday. So that's where the 55 come from. All right. I hope you enjoy today's show. As I said, my guest today is Jordan Smith. Jordan is a state and national award-winning investigative journalist. She's based in Austin, Texas, and she's covered criminal justice issues for nearly 20 years. And during that time, she's developed a reputation as a resourceful and a dogged reporter. She has a talent for analyzing complex social and legal issues, and she's definitely done that with the case we're going to be talking about Today, her work has appeared all over the place in The Nation and on The Crime Report, as well as The Intercept, which the article we'll be talking about today is where that was published. Welcome to Felony Friday, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I did talk about it in the intro, a little bit about this case to give our listeners a little background info. And we'll spend the majority of this interview talking about this case, this article that you wrote, Nightmare in Sin City, How a Rumor sent a teen to prison for murder in this Vegas case. 
But before we do that, I do want our audience to get a chance to get to know you a little bit better, get to know so they can get to know what you're passionate about. So if you can just start out maybe by sharing a little bit about your background and maybe ultimately uh, what led you, what attracted you to a career to become an investigative journalist. Well, I suppose the easiest answer to that is that my parents were both journalists, but I don't know that that adequately sums it up. My father and mother were both working in Chicago when I was born. I grew up kind of formative years on the south side of Chicago. There was a lot of crime. My father was really involved in social justice issues. And so I think it was kind of a sort of confluence of all those things that probably infected me and turned me to this life, (laughs) this professional life. That seems to be a common theme for a lot of my guests I have, be it if they're doctors or lawyers or if they're they're former cops or, or whatever they are. It seems a lot of people are attracted to what their parents did. And I, I think that's I think that's a good thing. I mean, I, I know myself, I'm not a lawyer, but my father's a lawyer. And I'm, you know, growing up, him sharing and talking a lot about uh, the cases that he had got me interested in, in criminal justice reform. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast, so I can definitely relate to that. I do want to ask you next, this case, it's a crazy case. You almost can't believe it's able to happen <laughs> in the United States of America. But I'm just kind of curious to start. How did you hear about this case and and what got you interested in it and pursuing it? Actually, it's kind of a, a weird little thing. I had written a story a number of years ago about a Texas case that was sort of part of that whole satanic ritual abuse panic that sort of infected criminal justice in the 80s. You might be familiar with the McMartin preschool case where essentially the contention by a a bunch of people was that Satanists had taken over the nation's daycares and were, you know, sexually abusing young children. And it sounds so crazy now to say, except for people really believe this stuff. And so there was a couple in Austin who had been convicted in a similar manner. And I was looking at their case and I had published a big story about them. And in the comments section was somebody from Vegas saying, you need to look at this case, you need to look at this case. And at the time, I was working for a really super local publication. And so, you know, didn't really have the ability to report a story in Vegas. But when I started with The Intercept, I, for some reason, popped in my mind one day, not long after I'd taken the job and thought, wait a minute, what was that Vegas case? So I jumped on the internet and I remembered that her name was Kirsten or Kristen and I and quickly found her. And then once I got in touch with a woman named Michelle Ravel, who is pretty much Blaze's biggest advocate, I was hooked because it was so unbelievable. <laughs> the story was so unbelievable. It's unlike anything I've ever heard before and it's unlike any other case I've ever worked on. For this interview, I was kind of hoping you could sort of, we could walk through this case. I'm assuming a lot of the listeners aren't familiar with it. So sort of walk through the timeline, just like the way you laid it out in your article. And of course, I will link to the article on the show notes page so people can go read it. We're obviously not going to have time to talk about every aspect of it. And I've probably read it six or seven times. Every time I read it, I pick up on something else. But I did kind of want to start at the beginning, the same way you started your article, talking about this body being found in this Vegas dumpster behind a bank. And could you just maybe explain to the listeners with this case, what is the significance of the trauma that was discovered on this body? And just give a description of really how brutal this murder was that occurred. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a a truly brutal crime. One of the most brutal I've ever seen. It was July of 2001 and about 10 o'clock at night. And a guy who was kind of rummaging through this dumpster 
finds this body and it's covered in trash and it's a dead guy who eventually is going to be identified as a 44-year-old homeless man named Duran Bailey. And he was basically brutalized. His skull was cracked and his eyes were swollen shut. Teeth had been knocked out and were sort of scattered around him. He'd been stabbed repeatedly. His carotid had been sliced. Um, I mean, the place was just soaked in blood. And what they find also is that his groin is wrapped in plastic. And when they pull it off, they realize that his penis had been cut off and they found it sort of under some other trash several feet away, and that his anus had also been stabbed. I mean, the, he was brutalized. <laughs> it just an absolutely uh, horrible crime. Hard to picture how anyone could really do something so brutal to another human being. And you know, detectives on this case, as you wrote in your article, really didn't have any leads at the time. There were some clues, right? There were some footprints and some tire tracks and I think there was a ATM video thing, which I don't even know if that ever came into play, any video from that. I don't think it did. But they really had no leads to go with what for like almost two weeks, right? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, it's pretty astonishing that they felt and then they do. They, you know, the main detective, a guy named Thomas Thousand, testified in court that, you know, they were essentially flummoxed, which is sort of astonishing to me because you have an incredibly brutal murder with an incredibly rich crime scene. You have to understand this bank and where the dumpster is located behind the bank in the parking lot is on a very busy, busy strip of road that is just, just off the strip. It's actually across the street from where the Palms Casino is now. And so it's very, I mean, it's a busy bustling area. And behind it are two large apartment complexes. And as you said, there's a bank there with an ATM. And in fact, the Palms was under construction at that point. And almost certainly you would imagine that there were cameras there as well. And yes, as you say, there were bloody footprints <laughs> leading away from the crime scene. There were lots of rich potential sources of DNA on his body, on his clothing. His pants had clearly been pulled down in such a way that you know that somebody touched them. There's the plastic. There's all manner of details that you could soak in. And yet they just sort of were dismissive for about, I think, 11 days. And they just doesn't seem like they did anything. I should say the police report in this case is so paltry, again, among the thinnest pieces of work I've ever seen in a case of this magnitude in terms of how many potential witnesses or even people that could have heard something. Because you have to imagine that this probably was not a quiet attack. And so you have all these people living nearby, you have, you know, potential cameras, nothing. They didn't, according to the police report, it is silent for days. And then they basically get a phone call from a woman named Laura Johnson who lives in a mining town called Pioche, which is about three hours northeast of Vegas. And there are kind of Mormon communities up in this sort of really lovely area of mountains that aren't far from the Utah border. And she basically says that she heard a rumor that a woman who was from Panaca, a nearby town, had cut off a man's penis down in Vegas. And so imagine this. They ignore basically every other potential lead there is, and they get a sort of third-hand hearsay account in a phone call from a woman three hours northeast of the city, and they hightail it up there. And they go and talk to her. And it basically turns out that they're talking about Kirsten Lobato. And it is such hearsay, though. So Laura Johnson knows a woman 
who is a teacher of an alternative school who once had Lobato as a student. And she says that this woman, Dixie Tienkin, came to her and said that Lobato had come to Tienkin and said she'd cut a man's penis off down in Vegas. This is all they have to go on. They go and they talk to Laura Johnson, and she has no details. I mean, it's, 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 it's worth noting that all she has is this sort of bare bones of a rumor. She doesn't know any details that could be relevant, like where did it happen? When did it happen? You know, anything that might actually help them connect whatever this potential rumor is to the actual crime scene that they know they have. And the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the police didn't go and talk to Dixie either, the one who had told had told this rumor to or told this to Laura Johnson. Exactly. No, they absolutely bypassed Dixie, who's the one who theoretically has, you know, the firsthand information because she talked to Kirsten Lobato. But no, they don't do that because Laura Johnson suggests that they shouldn't. Because if they go do that, then Dixie would probably warn Kirsten that they were on to her and that would be bad. <laughs> and then so they say, okay. And they instead go straight to Kirsten Lobato's house. And so maybe you could give a little backstory on this, on Kirsten Lobato. You know, she's 100 pounds, 18 years old at the time. She did have sort of a abusive past, correct? And she did have some drug habits? Absolutely. I mean, she was about 100 pounds soaking wet at the time and just kind of a lanky teenager. She did. She grew up, she had a troubled upbringing. She had some problems with her parents. Her stepmother and father are quite honest about some of their past drug use, which was mostly methamphetamines, and that she had had several sexual assaults where she'd been sexually assaulted as a relatively young girl. One of those assaults was reported and it went nowhere. And so she kind of had developed, she was a depressed and sort of anxious young girl with a not great upbringing. She had dropped out of school because she was being bullied. She ended up, this is how she meets Tienkin, is she ends up graduating from the alternative school. And then shortly thereafter, she decides to go to Vegas to get out of P.O., get out of Panaca, which is not uncommon for kids up there. They're very small towns. And it's, I think, also worth noting that they're heavily Mormon towns, heavily Mormon. And she was not Mormon. And that actually makes life somewhat difficult up there if you're a non-Mormon living in those towns. So there was a confluence of factors that basically led her to leave the area and try to go make her way in Vegas. Unfortunately, what she took with her was her, you know, drug use and some of her depression, you know, and that really kind of impacted what happened to her once she went to Vegas. What actually did happen, because there is some truth to the story a little bit, Kirsten Lobato did come back to her hometown and she was telling stories of uh, being attacked in Vegas and acting in self-defense, saying that she cut off a man's penis in self-defense. So can you tell a little bit about that story and how it sort of it doesn't even overlap with the uh, the murder in the other case? Right, exactly. So after she leaves Panaka and goes down to Vegas, she ends up sort of hanging out with a, a big party crowd and doing a lot of methamphetamine and ends up staying at basically a, a day, week, month sort of uh, flop housey motel called the Budget Suites. They're all over Vegas. And she's staying at one with some friends on the east side of Vegas in kind of a rough neighborhood. And one night after she's coming out partying and walking toward the apartment where she's staying at the Budget Suites, she basically gets jumped from behind by a large black man who pushes her down and 
pushes up her skirt, pulls aside her panties, and tries to rape her. She's basically pleading with him to stop. He slaps her and says, shut up, bitch. And then she's able, even with his weight on her, to kind of wrestle her arm free, get it into her back pocket, and to pull out a small butterfly knife that she always carried with her. And she basically gets it out, flips it open, and just sort of grabs at his groin and slashes. He recoils and starts crying. She jumps up and leaves. What's important to know about this is that this happens all around Memorial Day. So in May, this happens in May of 2001. And Duran Bailey isn't murdered until July the 8th, all the way on the other side of town and nowhere near budget suites. So this kind of leads into the confession or the perceived confession of when the police did show up at her house after they got that phone call from a third party saying that she was telling people she'd cut off a man's penis. So what did she exactly say that was construed as a confession? Well, well, here's the thing. So after this incident happens, she basically says several different things. She says she, she leaves Vegas and she goes back and hangs out with some friends up north and she proceeds to tell them about what happened. And you have to understand, she's telling people about this attack that happened in May. She's telling people in May. She's telling people in June. And then finally... And her story sort of evolved. She's known for a little bit of exaggeration. So what initially she said happened was she just sliced at him. This kind of gets more exaggerated. Oh, I cut it off, you know, as she's telling her story. But essentially, everybody, not everybody, but most of the people that she's hung out with and many of her dear friends, old school friends, have heard this story long before Duran Bailey was ever murdered. So... It has bothered her, though, because she never knew what happened to the guy. And this is why she says she went to Dixie Tienkin, because she was hoping that Dixie could help her maybe search online to see what had ever happened to this guy, because it had bothered her. I mean, she attacked a guy. and He was clearly injured, but she was curious about what happened. So she tells Dixie this, and they never can find anything. So when the cops show up at her door that day, she thinks that this guy who attacked her in May has died. And they absolutely do nothing to clear it up. So what she says is, gosh, I, you know, I didn't know somebody would miss a guy like him. And she's saying things that sound very inculpatory. But the problem is that they don't do their job. This is a terrible, terrible interview. And in fact, it's really difficult to listen to. I've heard the audio of it many times, and it just is cringeworthy. Because you get the sense that the cops are getting exactly what they need and they don't really care whatsoever if it's actually the correct information. In other words, as long as somebody's going to say they cut off somebody's penis or injured somebody's groin down in Vegas and it happens to be a black man, which also Duran Bailey was, then it's sort of like one and done. You know, they don't really care. They're not taking this investigation seriously and it's clear from the beginning. So she is trying to explain to them what happened to her. And she does offer some pretty decent detail about what happened with the budget suites. She kind of describes the neighborhood, you know, what happened, la, la, la. They have to know that this does not at all match their crime scene. It is miles across town and it does not look the same at all. But they do not do anything in order to determine if they're both talking about the same crime. So in part, what makes it really difficult to listen to is you hear her and she's crying and she's very upset. Set and she's, you know, saying she feels so bad about what happened in this attack and da da da. And then they're just sort of sitting there steely 
And you can see that they're talking about two different things. It's just so painful to listen to. And then, you know, they basically decide to arrest her at the end. And she doesn't understand what's going on. And then, you know, they basically say to her that, you know, you're arrested for this thing. And she says, wait a minute, but this happened like months ago. And then they turn off the tape recording and they don't ask any more questions and they arrest her and take her back to Vegas. Yeah, it's it's really unbelievable. Oh, I know, um, right? Literally, the only thing, like you just said, linking the two things together, the man that tried to, the black man that tried to attack her, and this man that was brutally murdered, is they're both black and they both had their penises either cut off or, or injured. And there's one thing you wrote in your article, which I think is very telling. It really talks about it. In order for people to believe this case, to believe that she's responsible then they have to believe that she was going around beforehand saying that she cut off a man's penis before it actually ever happened, right? Right. So she would have to, for more than a month, (laughs) like six, seven weeks, basically, she would have to be walking around Vegas and all around, you know, the mountains and Panaca and Pioche and talking about how she was attacked and, you know, got away from it by slashing at a guy's groin and hurting his penis. I mean, for weeks, she'd have to be saying this only so that she could then go down to Vegas and notably go to a part of town she was not familiar with to somehow end up at a dumpster behind a bank because, I don't know, a a homeless guy might be there who she could cut off his penis. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. It defies all logic. How did the defense, and I'm assuming this was just public defenders, right? So maybe this does tell the story. They're overwhelmed with workload and they didn't really have time to do real legal work. But still, how does the defense not call all these people that she was telling the story to or her dear friends? How is this not all brought out of the trial? Well, I mean, it's complicated. A couple of people weren't called and why isn't entirely clear. But those that were called that I spoke with, and then same thing with the public defender were very frustrated because basically the judge in more than one instance would side with the prosecution who claimed that their accounts of what Lobato had told them directly was actually hearsay. And so they were able to keep out some, you know, sort of notable portions of what they were told on the ground that it was hearsay, which it wasn't. And it's sort of confounding to me how that happened, but that's basically how it went. So how did the prosecution, with having having Lobato sitting in the courtroom, you know, being 100 pounds, being a, a small girl, how did they convince the jury that she was capable of brutally murdering, of bashing a, uh, a much larger man's skull in? Well, they didn't. They basically <laughs> invoked the penis, and that was all it took. They suggested that this account that she had about being attacked in May was just sort of her her meth-addled brain at work. And in fact, what she really meant was that it was this July incident where she murdered Bailey. And, you know, I think in closing, one of the prosecutors was like, you know, you'll never forget this case. It's the penis. It's the penis. You know, it's like, (laughs) that's it. All you need is the penis. And that took care of it. And really it did. That's really all it took. I guess uh, these prosecutors and the jury believe that meth makes you time travel. I, I don't know. I, I guess so. <laughs> I, I, you know, yeah, but like I say, they were sort of successful at keeping out portions of testimony from things that she had told friends that really would have pinpointed her attack at an earlier point. I mean, they just were able to do some pretty sneaky stuff, actually, in order to get what they wanted, which was to convict her for this. And I really think... 
as I think I said before, this is probably, oh my God, some of the shoddiest police work I have ever seen. It is just, they just did nothing at all. And in fact, you know, there were far more likely suspects and they ignored them completely to this day, have ignored those other potential and likely and far more plausible, you know, far more plausible scenarios were completely dismissed. Did the detective speak to you when you tried to reach out to them for this article? Oh, no, man. <laughs> no. I tried, you know, as hard as I could. I actually talked to Thousand's mother even. And then when I finally got in touch with his wife, she basically told me to go away. But I, I did every single thing I could. I went out there. I wrote letters. I made numerous calls. They refused to talk to me. It's an incredibly well-researched piece. And another aspect that I do want to talk about, I know we can't talk about everything, but I think it's very important to this case is the medical examiner. I think his name, uh, Dr. Larry Sims, yes. I believe. Yes. And it was key, really, I think in the first and second trial was the time of death, the way he reported it. And I think you did end up talking to him for this piece. And I don't know if he was convinced during the trials to give a different estimated time of death. But what did he say to you when you reached out to him? Yeah, I mean, time of death is critical in this case. It is the critical piece because she was in Panaca and the, the state concedes this. They have conceded that she was in Panaca on the day that Bailey's body was found. This was like July the 8th. His body's found at 10 o'clock at night. They concede that she was in Panaca from like roughly 11 to 12 a.m. that morning on, that she was nowhere in Vegas that day. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Because <laughs> so, you know, when he was killed, then obviously it becomes critical. They, I mean, there's no doubt. Everybody saw her. She was around. They have just they stipulated essentially that she was there. So when he's murdered is really important. And they know that the entire time. So Larry Sims, he basically from preliminary hearings through the first trial and into her second trial really sort of shifts his time of death estimation in sort of subtle ways, but really important. It doesn't, you know, wildly contract from, you know, this hour to like 24 hours, but it expands just enough that it makes it theoretically plausible that she committed the murder and then hightailed it back to Panaka, got there, cleaned up in time to be seen sort of having fun on a four-wheeler, you know, doing donuts in the street by neighbors. And so I think the thing about it for me was that it didn't make sense. There was nothing in any of the materials, either from the autopsy material through the preliminary hearings and up and through the second trial that would explain why he was, you know, changing his time of death estimate. So that's really why we wanted to talk to him. And uh, I hounded him for a really long time. <laughs> and like show up at the medical examiner's office in Las Vegas and be like, hi, <laughs> like leave messages. I'll be back. And I think maybe that's why he finally was like, oh God, she's not going to go away. So, you know, he basically at first said, you know, that he, you know, said everything that he had to say at trial. But then I kept pressing him and that's when he wrote back finally and said that his first estimation of time of death, which was basically the smallest window, was the accurate one. And then, as he recalled, that meant that Lobato was excluded from committing the murder. 
So now, wow, yeah, yeah, it was pretty. I was like, what? Like my jaw dropped. It was because it's like, oh, you know, now even the states, their only expert in time of death, as we said, is completely critical in this case. So their own expert now is saying, no, 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 no. There's no way she could. I mean, essentially, as we we're saying, there's no way she could have done this. And this is right. really important going forward because. At the time that I did this story and got this information from Sims, her case was pending before the Nevada Supreme Court on a writ, you know, basically seeking a new trial or to have her case overturned and to be exonerated. And part of the issue was that at um, a sort of <laughs> strangely, knowing how critical time of death is, the defense at neither trial had an expert witness come in to talk about their own time of death estimate, which I don't understand that decision either. But essentially, the Nevada Supreme Court has said, and they just ruled in November, said that, you know, they're kicking the case back to district court to actually have hearings related to this time of death issue, which is pretty amazing and kind of awesome because, you know, she's actually just secured really good representation, pro bono work through the Innocence Project. Oh, excellent. And, you know, I think these lawyers will finally effectively be able to show how important time of death was, how deficient it was of her attorneys to not hire their own uh, pathology expert or entomologist or somebody that talks about, you know, has some sense of time of death estimation. And also, you know, critically, they'll also have this piece that we reported, which is that the state's own expert now says that the timeline for Duran Bailey's death precludes Lobato from having committed the murder. So hopefully something good will finally come out of all this. Hopefully. I mean, that has to make you feel good for all the time you put into this, that, you know, this looks like, and some of the work that you've done could help to exonerate Kirsten. I mean, that would be great, obviously. It's like what every journalist wants, right? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So, you know, to, to be able to help in some way to sort of put this wrong right would be great. You know, because obviously whoever murdered Duran Bailey in such an incredibly vulgar, personal and gruesome way got away with it. They got away with it. We didn't even really talk about the other because you do put another theory of what could have happened. There was another woman that was likely raped by Duran Bailey multiple times that was interviewed by police. Well, yeah. I mean, this is the lead they basically ignored, which was Mm -hmm. a woman named Diane Parker, who is since deceased, lived in one of the apartment complex right behind the bank. And she had known Duran Bailey. In fact, seven days before he was found murdered, she had been brutally raped by him in her apartment. He basically used to live at the apartment complex with his mother. But after she died, he wasn't like it was like a rent controlled thing, I think. And so he basically wasn't allowed to stay there. And so he kind of became homeless and sort of floated around. But he stuck around the kind of area that he knew. So... He had sex in the past with Diane Parker. They both were drug users. And one night, essentially what happens is she's hanging out with some Mexican friends in a nearby apartment. He sees her hanging out with them and he doesn't like Mexicans and he basically tells her to stay away from them. He then comes back and basically rapes her over and over again in her apartment. And notable, I think, were her injuries. He basically tried to sodomize her. He put a knife to her carotid. He bruised up and blackened both of her eyes. They kind of, all of her injuries eerily are similar to the ones that ultimately led to his demise. 
she actually goes to the crime scene that night after they find the body, but notably right after the detectives have already left and says, hey, you know, I'm wondering if this is this guy who raped me. And they just say, okay, well, you know, we'll take your name and go home. And Thousand and his partner, Rochelle, they go by Parker's apartment the next day and essentially, you know, ask her if she had anything to do with it. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. but they want to look at the bottom of her shoes anyway, you know, to see if they might match the bloody prints. Well, there's no bloody shoes there. And so they just basically write her off without knowing any of this other stuff, including <laughs> notably that Diane did not report her rape by Duran Bailey right away. She waited a couple days and she only ended up reporting it to police because he came back and was trying to menace her again. And she was afraid of him. I mean, he had a rather violent history, especially violence towards women. And so she, I can understand why she would be afraid. So she goes forward at that point and she tells the cops, I know where he is. We could go pick him up right now. And they basically say, eh, yeah, we'll get around to that or whatever. And she says essentially that she's frightened and and she urges them to go pick him up. They refuse to go pick him up. And then she says, well, what do I do? You know, if he comes back, do I have the permission to kill him, essentially? And the cop says, you know, you do what you have to do. And that's how that kind of ends. And then, you know, three days later, Durant Bailey's body is found in the dumpster just, you know, blocks from her front door. Just in completely incredible case of incompetence on so many different levels. It's really hard to believe that our criminal justice, this happens in the United States of America in our criminal justice system. I mean, I believe it because I've seen so many other egregious violations of justice, but it's crazy. And I do want to thank you for coming on, Jordan. If you could maybe share with the Felony Friday audience where they can find your work and maybe where they can find you on social media to follow you. Sure. You can find this work at theintercept.com and you can find me on Twitter at chronic underscore Jordan. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is an incredible case and it definitely needed a light shined on it. Well, guys, that concludes the show for today. I really do appreciate you guys listening. If you're new to Felony Friday, if you're new to the Lions of Liberty podcast, and you haven't yet subscribed to receive the Alliance of Liberty podcast each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday via iTunes, please be sure to do that. And please be sure, it really helps us out too, to leave us a five-star rating and review at iTunes as well. If you guys enjoyed this show, if you enjoyed the format of this show, um, bringing an investigative journalist on to uh, interview, to talk through a story like this. If you like this format, let me know. If you like other formats where we have where I'll bring on a fellow Lions of Liberty member here, and we'll talk through some trending felonies in the news. Let me know about that too. Let me know what type of stuff you guys like to dig into. If you have some cases you want me to focus on, be sure to shoot them my way. You can either do that in the forum, which I talked about earlier, which you can join. It's the, our Facebook forum. You can join by going to facebook.com, punching Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top and joining. If you're not a Facebook person, that's fine. You can also send me an email Send your email to felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com and I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to hear your ideas. I'm making this show for you guys. All of us here at Lions of Liberty, we're making these shows to spread the ideals 
of liberty and to reach a wider audience. So our goal is to grow this audience and our goal is to serve our audience. We want to produce content that you guys enjoy. So we got to interact with you guys and we want to interact with you guys. Please, if you aren't following us on social media, please consider doing that. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty on Twitter, twitter.com slash Lions of Liberty. Please be sure to share our stuff, comment on it, like it, send it out to your networks. We really do appreciate it. Guys, I hope I didn't disappoint with this story today. I told you it was a, uh, a crazy story and I will keep you updated on it. Hopefully Kirsten does get another uh, day in court and hopefully the evidence uncovered by Jordan, hopefully that does come into play to help to exonerate her. That'd be awesome. It's great to hear that the Innocence Project is getting involved. That's always good news. They do fantastic work. So that's all I have for today, guys. Thank you for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>